everyone. Welcome to tonight's event. My name is Beth Hallen. I'm the Associate Director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and we put on philosophy and philosophy-themed events for a general audience uh, that are always free to attend, um, don't require tickets, and so on. That's thanks to the generosity of our donors and the support of the LSE, for which we are very grateful. If you'd also like to help us put on these events, we have a Just Giving page that you can find via our website. So if you'd like to, please do give some money to help support these kinds of events. Just some uh, housekeeping. If you could make sure the volume on your phone is uh, turned off for the event. You don't have to turn off your phone. In fact, you're very welcome to live tweet the event. We have a hashtag there. Um, and also bear in mind that this is being recorded for a podcast, so if you do ask a question, your voice will be recorded on it. That's it for me. I'll hand over to our chair for tonight's event. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Emotion. Um, are they controlling us? So um, today is part of an event that's part of a consilience series of events that is organized by the Forum of European Philosophy. And tonight we're going to have three presentations. We're going to have Lisa Bortoletti, a professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham, Benedetta de Martino, who's a Sir Henry Dale Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Psychology at University of Cambridge, and Giovanna Colombetti, who is an Associate Professor at University of Exeter. And I'm Tali Sherratt. I'm a reader of Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London. So each um, speaker will speak for about 10 minutes, and then we'll have a bit of discussion on stage and Q&A as well. So when you have questions, just let us know. And I think there's two people here with, with mics who are going to go around. Um, okay, so let me introduce our first speaker. Oh, and before I do that, if you are tweeting, apparently the hashtag for this event is LSCFEP, as in form of European philosophy. So the first speaker tonight is Lisa Borotelli, who is a, a professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham. Her main research area is the philosophy of cognitive science, and in this work she focuses on the limitations of human cognition and human agency. She received her PhD from the Australian National University in Canberra in 2004. And after a year at the University of Manchester, she joined the University of Birmingham in 2005, where she is now a professor and funded by the ERC. Her latest book is Irrationality, published by Polity Press 2014. And you may have noticed that we have an Italian theme today. Um, not premeditated, but should make it interesting. So... Please welcome. Okay, thank you, Tali, for inviting me, and thank you all for coming. Um, I want to start by looking at how philosophers have traditionally uh, conceived emotions. And I have to say that, on the whole, emotions have had a really bad press in traditional philosophical thought, especially with the rationalist philosophers, who are those who think that we get most of our knowledge through reason. And what I would like to do in the 10 minutes I've got is just give you a glimpse of how our way of understanding the role of emotions has gradually changed by looking at in particular, the role that emotions are playing in decision-making, in making choices that are important to our lives. 
And I want to start with an example. In Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, you've got a really nice portrait of two young girls who have experienced a lot of adversities. They've lost their father. They no longer have financial security. They're disappointed in love. And they react completely differently to their situation. The oldest, Eleanor, tries to hide her disappointment, not to make other people feel bad for herself, and also tries to reflect when she has to make an important decision. And her emotions are always kept. not hidden, but certainly they are not uh, something that she wears on her sleeves. Marianne is completely different. The youngest is very passionate, and she runs into things. She's impulsive. Sometimes the fact that she follows her emotions so strongly leads her to self-destructive behavior. And actually, in the end, she needs to become a little bit more like Eleanor um, to, to be happy. And I think... Marianne is really a a good example of what uh, philosophers have warned against for something like thousands of years. They're worried that the emotions may just take control. They're worried that if we don't exercise reason, we will be led to make unwise decisions based on our emotional reactions. And the obvious example here is Plato, who argued that both wisdom and psychological health come from having a mind that is harmonious. And the harmony comes from making sure that the different components of the mind are working together, where reason is in charge of emotion and spirit, which uh, was what, according to Plato in some of his dialogues, leads to courage. So the important thing is that emotions are inevitable. We have them. We cannot do without them. But if we want to become wise, if we want to live a good life, um, the idea is that we need to learn to control them. We cannot be ruled by them. And another important figure in this tradition of thought um, is Descartes, of course. He's another rationalist. He also thinks that reason is uh, paramount, but he's very interested in emotions, not only in the role that emotions play in philosophy and ethics, but also in the physiology of emotions. He thinks that they are essential to help us navigate the world because they give us important information, but he also thinks that they can very easily lead us astray. So the only way in which we can use emotion in a fruitful way is to um, control them again, to make sure that reason um, helps us see the ways in which emotions can be misleading. So the message seems to be, and of course it's a very partial history of philosophy, there are also empiricists who are much more friendly to emotions, but the message so far seems to be that um, emotions are there, we cannot really do without them, but they have a disruptive uh, role. And so what we need to do is contain their uh, possible disruption. This idea has been challenged consistently in recent times, not just in philosophy, but also in the sciences. And actually, we could really see emotions as a place where philosophy and the cognitive sciences have come together um, to try and understand better whether emotions can actually play a positive role in decision-making. And I think one milestone in this change has been Damasio's Descartes' error. So in this book... Uh, Damasio challenges the idea that emotions are a disruption to be contained. 
He actually thinks that emotions are essential to good decision-making. Without emotional reactions, we couldn't make decisions that are important to our lives. We couldn't shape our life. And the example, um, the case study that runs throughout the book and has become so influential now is that of Elliot, very intelligent young man with brain tumor who undergoes surgery, experiences prefrontal damage, and as a result of that, he becomes very flat when he's talking about events in his life that should have a very strong emotional repercussion on himself. So he passes all the intelligent tests, all, all the reasoning tasks. Um, he performs uh, well. But when it comes to making decisions from the most trivial to the most important, he seems to be paralyzed. When he needs to go out to dinner, he takes hours to choose a restaurant. And once he has chosen the restaurant, he takes hours to choose where to sit. So what's wrong with Elliot? I mean, choosing the restaurant is not the biggest decision in your life, but Elliot actually experienced much more serious disruption. He got very close to losing his job. His relationship suffered and so on. So what was happening there? So according to Damasio, what happened was that although Elliot could still feel basic emotions like fear in the presence of danger, what he couldn't experience was emotional reactions tied to things that he could remember or imagine. So when he's in the position of making a decision and he has several outcomes in front of him, what he doesn't feel is any emotional reaction towards those outcomes. And that is the problem. Because according to Damasio, emotions are somatic markers. What they do is they give us a very easy and fast way to make decisions because they narrow down our options. If you are thinking about a bad outcome, for instance, we feel an unpleasant emotion. And this makes us disregard that outcome as a possible way to go, as a possible thing to choose. Once you don't have the guidance of the emotions, yes, you still have the rational cost-benefit analysis, but that's long, takes time, it's computationally expensive, and you cannot rely on that alone. So the idea is that when no emotions arise of that type, no emotional reactions are provided for remembered or imagined things, remembered or imagined events, and so the person takes much longer to choose and sometimes is unable to make a choice. That is just one illustration of the way in which now we are trying to understand, we're starting to understand the role of emotions in agency. There are lots of other clues that we get, especially from an area where I'm working on, which is um, psychopathology, where it looks as if when you've got flattened or disrupted emotions, you are unable to follow through your plan, you cannot really pursue your goals, and once you have identified goals and you're trying to pursue them, it's very difficult to achieve them. So why is it that emotions have such a strategic role? It seems as if emotions are uh, can help us with a number of things. They provide information concerning the goal that we may want to achieve. They enable us to make fast decisions, as Damasio, as Damasio showed, but also they help us identify which factors are most relevant to our decisions. And most importantly, they sustain the motivation that we've got to act. How do they do that? We are um, going to pursue a goal um, if we see the goal as desirable. If we don't have an emotional connection with the goal, we lose our motivation. 
Similarly, motivation may decline if we cannot anticipate the pleasure that we will feel at the time when we actually fulfill the goal. And again, motivation seems to decline when there is no pleasure in pursuing the goal itself. So the, the activity of engaging with the experience, attempting to achieve something that some psychologists say is much more rewarding than the, actually pursuit of the, the actual pursuit of the goal, that may also be disrupted if we have flat emotions. So flat emotions are a problem, and they emerge in a number of uh, psychiatric disorders because they affect motivation. And if they affect motivation, then agency no longer works as it should. Now, agency overall, I think, is something that deeply defines uh, human beings and I think sets them apart, at least in some philosophical tradition, from other non-human animals. But there is one aspect of agency that has been considered always very distinctive of humans, starting from Aristotle, and that is moral agency the capacity to make decisions about what is good or bad without being completely swayed or controlled by emotional reactions. So the idea, again, with Aristotle was that although we share emotions um, with other animals, we are the only ones who can control emotions and decide how to act morally. But even this idea has been challenged recently because it has been considered very important to have certain emotions to base our moral decisions on. It's not that our moral behavior is always driven by reason, by deliberation. It's very often simply driven by emotions, sometimes raw feelings. Um, and one example is empathy. And Franz Deval, a very famous primatologist, has been looking at how primates in groups who live in societies exhibit altruistic behavior in a way that is very similar to the type of moral behavior that we praise in human societies. For instance, they help um, conspecifics who are disabled, even when the behavior of such conspecifics is such that in other situations they would be sanctioned. This form of altruism can be shared with other animals, according to Franz Deval, because empathy is at the basis of it. And he argues that our capacity for moral behavior has, been evol has evolved very much from um, this sense of empathy that emerges in social uh, communities and that makes us closer to non-human animals. Then, of course, there are things that we can do with our moral agency that non-human animals cannot do, um, but um, reason doesn't exhaust um, the value and the power of moral agency, according to him. So just to conclude, the roles of emotions in enabling decision-making, as we saw with Damas's example, supporting agency by sustaining motivation, and driving moral behavior are being explored and reassessed in a number of fields. And I think the message is that the bad press that emotions has ever had in philosophy so far um, is not really justified. Not only that, but in some areas, for instance, matters of the heart, it seems as if acting on intuitions and emotion may be wiser than trusting reason, because very often reason becomes just a sort of post-doc rationalization. We feel that we should act in a certain way. We do act in that way. When we are asked for a justification, we come up with good reasons um, that seem to make up a sensible argument, but those reasons aren't actually the causes of our behavior. They are an act of confabulation, as some people say. 
And sometimes that act of confabulation doesn't have particular benefits for us. It would be better to accept that we have acted on emotion instead. So maybe Marianne didn't have it all wrong. Maybe she was right in trusting her heart and showing her emotions. Thank you very much. Thank you. So our next speaker is Dr. Benedetto De Martino. Um, Dr. DiMartino got his PhD from University College London. He then received his, um, he worked, uh, sorry, he worked, he did his postdoc at Caltech where um, he was working under a Wellcome Trust uh, postdoctoral fellowship. He is uh, now a Henry, Sir Henry Dale Fellow at Cambridge University from the Royal Society and the Wellcome Trust. And he works in the field of decision-making and has done some important work on the role of emotion and social interaction on decision-making um, and how that is, um, comes up in the brain. So it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Benedetto De Martino. Um, Thank you, Tali. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I know you have a big expectation of a panel of three Italian and one Israeli talking about emotion. Hope we are not going to disappoint you. Um, okay, so let's start. Uh, is okay? Can I carry on from here? Yeah, I think it's more complicated. So we we often would like to think they are similar to this guy, Mr. Spock, that when we make a decision, we are always able to evaluate the prospect, the cost, the benefit of every action, and choosing the one is the best possible decision, and uh, the decision has like the higher expectation, expected value. In reality, we are probably much more similar to this guy. <laughs> and uh, I'm not just referring uh, to ease and my inability to lose the extra weight uh, gained during Christmas holiday in South Italy, but the fact that, uh, uh, like Tony Soprano, we tend to have bring with us a bag of very strong emotion. If have you seen The Soprano, Tony Soprano gets really angry, gets depressed, gets happy, and, um, and it seems almost all these emotions are like quite governing all his life, his decision and things. Now, while uh, we might think that Mr. Spock is more cool, I would like to claim that somehow studying Mr. Spock would be easier. And uh, Mr. Spock follow the rules of uh, classical economics. It's a beautiful rule that the state down like, um, which is the expected value of an action and which are the type of uh, um, steps you need to follow to reach that uh, action. And you follow some prescription of logical consistency. Mr. Spock, you won't make a choice that is inconsistent with each other and things. And um, classic economics does also a good job to describe um, Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano wants to make money. He wants that his brother Bing makes money. And he's pretty good at doing that. I mean, he can manage to, um, to achieve what he wants. And he's trying to maximize his own utility, as economics will tell you. However, uh, Tony is more complicated than that. You probably need also some psychology to try to understand Tony. Is is um, um, you know the entire series start with him being depressed and uh, um, passing a very difficult period. And I would claim, and not just because he pays my salary, that neuroscience will be also necessary to 
understanding. And here is maybe an occasion to make a quick point of why we need also neuroscience, not just because we like blob in the brain, we definitely like to see blob in the brain, but um, there is one reason, is uh, um, neuroscience will give us the constraints of our model. So if you're trying to run a video games uh, developed in 2016 on an old Commodore 64, for the people of you that have heard about such things, it will never run. It's just not, there is nothing wrong about the program, there is nothing wrong about the Commodore 64, it's just that software won't work on the hardware. And it's very important when we study how the people make decisions, people do anything, to try to understand which are the constraints of the system. So this has been a bit of a problem in classical economics. Uh, some of these computation, they are perfect, but as Lisa was saying, will take forever running on a human brain. And uh, um, that neuroscience will help us to just give the constraints of what Tony can do and what Tony cannot do. And uh, let's analyze one emotion. I mean, we are just said, uh, just as an example, and uh, let's concentrate on fear. That is one emotion has been very much studied as a very strong evolutionary advantage and as uh, linked with this effect of fight and flight response. So rather than now showing you a classic picture of a, a person running with a snake, we're going to go through an episode of The Soprano. So Tony, he just went out. I think it was in a period of his life he was a bit depressed. Um, and he went to buy some, uh, oh, we, yeah, I can't see very well. He went to buy some juice, he's come back in, like some orange juice, he's come back into his car, and with the corner of his eyes, he see a reflection of this man approaching the car with a quite threatening uh, uh, thing. But since he's, you know, probably you wouldn't be concerned, but if you are a boss of mafia, you need to take into account that. And in fact, the guy is a threat, and he's trying to kill him. And um, Tony immediately uh, has a fear response. This is a very, very quick response. As Lisa say, has the advantage of being like extremely you know, fast. It doesn't require almost any thinking. He drops his breakfast. Um, that is not really important anymore, you would imagine. <laughs> so... You're not going to have a breakfast with a bullet in your head. So <laughs> drop the breakfast, no matter how much you paid for it, and it starts to run, fight and flight. He starts to fly. He doesn't fly. He goes in his car very fast. He protects himself naturally, even without thinking what he's doing probably now. He just goes down because he knows the bullet is going to come on the top of his head. And he starts the other part of the response, the fight response. Uh, in which he starts, like, you know, uh, a fight with guy to try to disarm him. And after I'm s skipping some more gruesome steps, um, he managed to get rid of him and run away with his car. And now in this frame, uh, I don't know if you can see, you can see his emotion has changed. So the fear has been now replaced by happiness. And uh, I haven't put the rest of the sequence. In reality, actually... While fear has helped him, this happiness is going to damage him because he's get distracted, he's going to get in a car accident. Anyway, he's still at the second series, so he'll still survive for quite some time. Um, but why did I took you through these things? So I'll just to give you the point of several, it gives you several important points of what is uh, an emotion 
for. I mean, in this case, we are looking at a specific case of a very basic emotion that's very well preserved in animals, that is like fear. So the way in which, okay, if I have to be honest with you, nobody knows what an emotion is. And, uh, and I don't want to claim I know. It's a very interesting and complicated challenge. I mean, I'm thinking a lot, a lot now, people are thinking about artificial intelligence and things. It will be a really interesting question if this artificial intelligence machine will need to have emotion. Because we have developed emotion ourselves. There must have been a reason why we got them. And I'll give you my interpretation what is an emotion for. So I think as an emotion has been a prepackage of response, both cognitive and physical, they are very well adapted for certain type of situations. So you can imagine almost like if you have a, um, a stereo, in which you want to listen jazz music, you want to listen like pop music, you want to listen heavy metal, and you can tune the different things like uh, the bass and the volume depending what suits better that type of music. You can think of as an emotion as a preset, so you press jazz music and it will set everything at the best to listen jazz music, and now you want to listen heavy metal, you click another button and it will change everything. So emotion can give you this package that will affect your cognition, it will affect your bodily response, it will affect all your action, and it comes for free, it comes when you are born, it comes with you, is is like a package that comes with you that is extremely useful in many situations. However, we want also to talk, ah, I didn't tell you that part of this fight and fight response of uh, uh, Tony Soprano was driven by this very ancient structure in his brain, that is amygdala, is a, a bilateral structure. It's called amygdala from the Latin almond. This is where being Italian comes handy. Um, and uh, is a very well-preserved structure in the brain and is mediating this very immediate approach and avoidance response when a treating stimulus is coming and thing. However, when we have this brain, we don't have this brain just to run and flight. We do many other things with this brain. And um, I wanted to claim you, I show you how this same type of response can have some unexpected consequence in quite more abstract domain. And I'm telling you an, an experiment, um, a study done by, uh, based on the work of Tversky and Kahneman. Danny Kahneman has been my mentor and is a fascinating person. He's, uh, a psychologist that winning the Nobel Prize for Economics without having done one lesson of economics in his life. That is a very good thing, so we all have a hope. Um, so in this famous uh, experiment, uh, uh, McNeil and Tversky were showing uh, people, but they also showed expert doctor. I mean, that was the interesting aspect that they did on, on, on normal people, but also on expert doctor. A case of a patient with a cancer, and the patient had two options. He could just go for surgery that was better in the long term, but some risk associated that you could die during the surgery, or radiotherapy that would be give a worse outcome in the long term, but in the short, uh, uh, in the short terms was much more safe. And now, when the, the probability of uh, um, surviving the surgery were expressed in terms of surviving rate, 42% of the people were choosing the uh, surgery. And when the same probability were expressed in terms of mortality rate, 25% that dropped to 25% of people uh, choosing to do the surgery. So we are talking about people that have been trained, expert doctor and things, and nevertheless they still had this 
immediate like this response to something like aversive like mortality rate and thing. So based on this experiment now long time ago during my PhD since these effects are very very strong and these are called framing effects are very spread in the population we were really interested to understand what was the neural underpinning of this effect why these effects are so common are so difficult to, to get rid of. And we designed the task in which we generated the framing effect very simply. We get the task in which the subject receives an amount of money, let's say we'll give you 50 pounds to play a, a game, and then you can choose to keep 20 pounds for sure, or you can play a lottery in which you can win all 50 pounds or lose all of them with a certain probability. So now, if you choose the safe option or the risky option, it's up to you, is how risky you are. And that wasn't the manipulation of the task. The manipulation of the task, the half of the time, I'll show you the same uh, situation in which I say you receive 50 pounds, you can either now lose 30 for sure, or you can gamble to win all of them. And this is a very transparent frame, and we made it so clear to the people that was just, we said, look, it's just to keep you attending to the task because it's a bit boring. So sometimes we'll tell you how much you keep of the money, how much you lose of the money. And I'm not going to go into detail, but unsurprisingly, people showing a very strong framing effect. They prefer to go for the sure option when it was uh, uh, framed as a gain frame, and while they prefer to to go the gambling option as one to go as the loss frame. And you can also understand why, because uh, you can see. If you believe me, this idea that people tend to approach positive stimulus while going away from uh, negative stimuli, the word keep is an approaching, uh, uh, a word that once you approach, while the words lose, even if uh, mathematically you know it's exactly the same, is something that's going to go away. And in fact, when we, we run that in the scanner, we found exactly the same area that was saving the life to Tony Soprano, is also the same area responsible for your susceptibility to the framing effect. And I want to just conclude saying that uh, we, years after we studied, uh, uh, oh, I'm way away on my time. So I'll just tell very quickly that uh, um, there are rare patients that have lesion in this part of the brain and are unable to, uh, to perceive fear. And this is a famous patient that is missing his amygdala. And this patient, paradoxically, is more rational in, in this type of task, like uh, this gambling task. He doesn't show this loss aversion, this aversion to the loss. But her life is pretty miserable in many, many other aspects. And we can discuss about that because of her inability to avoid threat. And I wanted to conclude to tell you to live long and prosper. Benedetto. So our last speaker for today is Giovanna Colombetti, and she's an associate professor at the University of Exeter who works on the philosophy of cognitive science. Her main research interest concerns effective phenomena, and she received her PhD from the University of Sussex, and after that went to do a postdoc at Harvard University and York University. Her most recent book is The Feeling Body, Affective Science Meets the Inactive Mind, from MIT Press 2014. She is currently funded by the ERC. So, our last speaker. Okay. 
Well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me here. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you to you for coming. I think it's the first time I talk to so many people, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm still not completely controlled by my anxiety. So, okay, so I decided to just, uh, um, when Tali invited me, she said uh, the forum is going to be on emotions. Do they control us? So I just decided, okay, I'm just going to try to answer this question and see where my uh, thinking leads me. I've been informed by some of my work, um, hopefully. So, I mean, yes, I think there is a very short and simple answer to this question. I think, of course, uh, sometimes emotions do control us. Um, I think um, many of us have experienced, uh, I kind of dread to say all of us, but, you know, at least many of us have experienced situations in which uh, we were completely overtaken by an emotion. Perhaps, uh, you know, I can certainly remember situations in which I wanted to uh, keep calm and cool and controlled, but I got quite mad at someone and raised my voice in spite of not wanting to be angry. And of course, giving talks to people, wanting again to, to appear self-confident, but then being overwhelmed by your anxiety, by, you know, the trembling of the hands. Um, and of course, well, I, I, I would imagine you probably can come up with many other examples from your own experience. So, yeah, very simple answer. But so I thought I might uh, then um, address the kind of uh, mirror side of this question. So, you know, what about us controlling our emotions? I think that's a very interesting fact that we can also control our emotions, at least sometimes. Um, you probably have heard this nice advice when you are a bit uh, upset or anxious to take a deep breath. And indeed, here is someone who is taking a deep breath. And this can help when you are particularly anxious or, again, when you are you know, getting a bit uh, angry at someone. So uh, psychologists, in fact, talk about emotion regulation. This is now a very um, say hot and sexy topic in the psychology and neuroscience of emotion. Uh, the term emotion regulation refers generally to a set of strategies that we use uh, to change our emotional states. So you might say also to control our emotional states. And uh, psychologists talk about downregulating or upregulating our emotions. So downregulating refers here to the idea that we can reduce uh, um, our emotions. So obviously, if you're taking a deep breath to calm down, that's a kind of an attempt to downregulate your anxiety. But we can also upregulate our emotions. Try to, you know, before a, again a, a talk, kind of try to cheer us up or um, make us energized and optimistic about. The, um, the event. And then there is another, maybe less obvious sense in which we regulate our emotions. Sometimes we just try to keep that emotional state. We try to maintain it. So th these are all things that psychologists are looking at. And a question that, of course, emerges once you start about, um, uh, when, when you start thinking about emotion regulation is, well, who or what does this regulation or who does the controlling? Us us only, some part of us. In psychology, um, there is a lot of talk of cognitive strategies to regulate our emotions. In fact, sometimes you even find that emotion regulation as a phenomenon is defined as a set of cognitive strategies to influence our, our emotional states. And um, some of the cognitive strategies that are mentioned in psychology are things like trying to think of something else or redirecting your attention. 
uh, I guess a typical example would be when, when you're watching a distressing movie or news on the TV. In fact, they warn you at the beginning. So sometimes, you know, we, we see some distressing image and we just shift our ch- attention. We close our eyes. We look somewhere else. We can also try to reevaluate the situation in which we are in. So, you know, before giving a talk to many people and if you're getting anxious, you might think, oh, uh, after all, even if I'm, you know, if I can't speak properly, if I miss some of my sentences, it's not going to be the end of the world. And so there's a way in which one can deal with, with one, one's anxiety. Or we can also assess how we will cope with a certain situation. Now, I think these are very important strategies. I think um, you, you probably recognize some of these strategies and how you apply them in your everyday life. One thing that strikes me, though, when I read this literature on cognitive um, emotional regulation is that, indeed, these strategies are all very much heady, I like to say. So these are all strategies that involve mainly, indeed, cognitive uh, processes. You think about something. You assess. You evaluate. So these things have to do with your knowledge. Um, But uh, what I want to draw attention to is the fact that we regulate our emotion not just by using these cognitive strategies. We also do it by using our body and also something which is maybe less obvious if you haven't thought about this before. We also use um, things in our environment to regulate our emotions. So I want to talk a bit about these embodied and situated regulatory strategies. Um, And I guess this does relate to my philosophical work. I I am particularly interested in the idea that the mind is not just in the head. Um, In fact, I think that the mind is realized, if you want, or if it's caused, it comes about, uh, on the whole embodied uh, organism. And in fact, also, not just on that, the organism that I am, I'm not just floating about in some kind of empty space, I am also situated or embedded in my environment. And I think this uh, embodied, situated, and embedded character of the mind that I am can be very much seen in my strategies of emotion regulation, and also in your strategies of emotion regulation, given that you are embodied, situated organisms. So what I'm going to do now is give you some examples of embodied and situated regulation, just some examples, but you can probably think of many others. So I mentioned already the fact that sometimes we just breathe to calm down. This is indeed a process of embodied regulation. True, we might actually decide cognitively, okay, now I'm going to take a deep breath. But in the end, after that, what you do is you let your body do regulatory work for you. I have here a picture of someone um, doing some yoga, well, kind of yoga pose, I guess. Uh, And, of course, uh, yoga is another way in which we can regulate our emotions by doing things with our body. But what I liked about this picture, sorry, the laser, yes, that person is smiling. And I don't know if you've ever taken yoga classes, but uh, when I, you know, I take yoga and uh, um, sometimes, you know, you're in a kind of very hard position to keep, and the teacher says, remember to smile. And it's true, if you smile, if you're in this very effortful situation, but you smile, that changes your experience. So that can be a way in which you regulate your emotion. And in fact, psychologists already in the 80s have done lots of experiments on how when you change your facial expressions, you change the way you feel. So there are quite uh, intriguing examples. Maybe you've heard about them. I'm going to tell you about that because they're quite intriguing. But if you put a pen horizontally in your mouth, actually between your teeth, 
in this way so that um, the muscles that usually contract when you smile contract. Then if I show you some comic uh, um, pictures, you are going to evaluate those pictures as more funny than if you didn't have the pen in your teeth. So that's actually incredible. It shows how just modifying our facial expression changes uh, our evaluations and also the way we feel. I also have this picture here because, so look at this person, B. B is taking on a very self-confident position. Again, this could be seen as a way of regulating your emotion via your body. Again, lots of uh, empirical evidence showing that uh, if you take on an um, upright position, you're likely to feel more, uh, more proud in a certain situation rather than you're kind of all slouched down and uh, kind of taking this depressed uh, posture. What about the idea of situated regulation? Well, let's consider again this picture. This picture, this person is not just uh, um, uh, in a kind of self-confident position, but is also wearing a kind of cool suit. So here you can see this person is also using um, parts of the environment, in this case, a uh, kind of piece, of piece of cloth, to influence the way in which he appears to others. So he is regulating or controlling his self-image and presumably thereby also increasing his sense of self-confidence. So here we have a case in which the self-confidence, uh, we can assume uh, that this person experiences, is being supported by his bodily stance and also aspects of the world, like, like his clothing. Situated regulation, well, how many of us uh, uh, do, I do, I eat lots of chocolate when I'm bored, uh, and it helps. <laughs> and we know that uh, things like chocolate and other drugs influence our physiology and thereby our affective states. Although it doesn't, it's not very good for your teeth, as you can see in this picture. <laughs> um, and then, for example, retail therapy, that's just another case, right, of, uh, of uh, regulating your emotion. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure, I'm sure actually uh, retail therapy acts on different levels. You know, in which way does it make you feel good? Maybe for a little bit of time. And, and just my last consideration about this idea of situated regulation. This, you know, this can be all quite obvious, although if you have never thought about it, you might be surprised actually to notice how many times you rely on the environment to change your affective state. But consider how subtle and how sophisticated our processes of uh, uh, situated regulation can be. So they are also temporally extended. So um, here I have, um, this is a magazine about to how to decorate your home. And in fact, if you look at these magazine covers, often they refer to emotion and how it makes you feel to decorate your home in a way or in another. So this one has enjoy the comforts or ho of home. And indeed, there are studies in the sociology of consumption showing that people do decorate their home to feel more comfortable or to have specific affective experiences. But so what is the difference? I think there is an interesting difference between this case, so decorating your home in a certain way, and the eating the chocolate. Because eating the chocolate gives you this you know, immediate influence on, on your physiological system, which will influence how you feel. But this case, this case, when you decorate your home in a certain way, there is also the idea that this is a long-term pro process. So it's something that is quite structured, the idea that you construct a kind of niche that will al allow you to have certain emotions in a kind of regular uh, way. So there is a kind of temporal, temporal extension to this way of regulating your emotion. 
And similarly, consider just listening to music. Music is this amazing, temporally extended uh, um, forms of art that supports our affective states as it unfolds. So music is not just like eating a piece of chocolate. When you listen to music, your mood goes up and down depending on the kind of music you're listening to. So a kind of really temporally extended way of regulating your affect. And similarly, say, you know, if you decide to go to go to a party or a dance party where there are other people around, what you're doing is you make, maybe you make a decision first, you know, a kind of cognitive decision, you know, I'm feeling really down, I need to do something about it. But then once you are in that situation, what is going on is that it is the world, it is other people, it is the whole situation that is regulating your emotions for you. So I guess uh, to go back then to the question, emotions, do they control us? Yes, I think emotions do sometimes control us. But they do so in a context where we constantly regulate our affective condition with our head, if you want, but also through our body and through our interactions with the material environment in which we are pervasively situated. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I want to start with a very basic question. So you often hear about emotion on one hand and rationality on the other hand. So I wanted to start just by asking you what you think emotion is and what rationality is. And we've already heard Benedetto give us a little bit of a definition on what he thought emotion is. Um, so whoever wants to begin. Uh, Benedetto, you want to take the other side of the coin? Yes, and I think I don't uh, like much this dichot- dichotomy of between rationality. And I think it's been a big of red herring for a long time in a lot of um, um, research, uh, this idea of uh, um, even just this idea of the rational brain and the emotional brain. I, I don't want to give you that uh, idea when I showed you the amygdala. That is a, so amygdala is really important in very complicated cognitive process as well. And uh, the area that Lisa was talking about, prefrontal cortex, that region that that guy had the lesion and he couldn't make this, uh, you know, the idea of somatosensory marker is a very high-level cognition area. So I, I think uh, the two one are much more... Uh, I think we should go out of this uh, simplification of, like, uh, rationality versus emotion as two contrasting things. I think they are two sides of... Uh, they are actually interconnected in cognition. This is the way I say it. So what do you think rationality is? Rationality is uh, an illusion in the head of economists. And the, and the reason, the and the reason is uh, because uh, rationality is defined as a violation of some arbitrary rule that has been defined. And sometimes these rules are unreasonable, and they are actually not even good to have them necessarily. It would be more interesting to say what is more adaptive for a certain environment, what would be more optimal in a certain environment. But there isn't something that is rationally always good to do. And I can... Uh, tell you, if we were following the advice of game theory and rationality, probably the entire world would have been blown, because one of the suggestions was to drop an atomic bomb on Russia before Russia will drop an atomic bomb on us, because that would be the rational things to do. And thankfully, we're not rational enough to do these things. Okay, well, uh, 
Uh, is this on? I can just yeah. tell. Okay. Yes, I, I, I must say I'm a bit um, intimidated answering this question because the whole you know, question of what rationality is really huge and, and very complex, and there are philosophers who have worked on it much more than I have. So, so what I can say from my perspective is more that I've, in my work, I've criticized, this, I've criticized a certain tendency to think that emotions are you know, our bodily states, and in fact, when we are not being rational, it's because we are being overwhelmed by things that are going on in the body, which are kind of, you know, the body is not really smart. It's this thing that activates, and, you know, the head is what is smart. The head is the one that takes decision. Rationality is a cognitive process. And I've tried to challenge that dichotomy by, on the one hand, thinking that, well, emotions often are, well, rational, or as you know, it's been pointing out, they lead us to do the right thing. And the body itself, I think, can be, in a sense, smart and intelligent, perhaps not rational, but certainly it's not this dumb thing that just you know, overwhelms us and we have to kind of tame. Um, so I think that whatever rationality is, I wouldn't want to just say it's a heady intellectual process that you completely detach from our, from, our, from our bodies. I want to say that rationality is somehow a way of acting reasonably in the world, perhaps according to how you have trained yourself to do and also according to certain um, maybe values that you try to follow, but you follow them by embodying them, by going about in the world in a very... Uh, you know, not just as in your head, but as a bodily being. Okay, so um, I think the difficulty with the question what rationality is, is that we really use it as a value concept, a bit in the same way in which we use sometimes the word science, right? So when we want to say that something is respectable uh, or follows um, a good method, we say it's scientific. And I think similarly, sometimes we do the same with rational. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that is very often abused um, and used in very many different contexts. So if there is something that we value, if we think it's important that we um, manifest in our behavior a certain type of um, value, then we judge that behavior to be rational. But if that doesn't happen, then it becomes irrational. And there are lots of different areas in which we use it. So what I'm mainly working on is belief. And in the area of belief, you've got this idea of epistemic rationality. So a belief is rational when it's backed up by evidence. And if you get evidence against that belief, you revise it or you drop it. And so that's a very um, simple um, notion of rationality that applies to a very uh, small, narrow context. But then you've got, I think, what most people think about when they think about rationality, which is much more what Plato and Aristotle had in mind when they were thinking about wisdom, is the capacity to live a happy, satisfying life, is the capacity to make decisions that other people admire, that you can be happy with yourself. And it is more something like practical rationality. And that, I think, involves very... Um, Importantly, both the cognitive and the affective, if we can always make that distinction, because I completely agree with the previous speakers that it's not very easy to say this strategy is a cognitive strategy or uh, this phenomenon is an affective phenomenon. Very often, emotions and belief, cognition and affect come together, and it's difficult to sharply distinguish them. But definitely, if we're thinking about practical rationality, about in, in, the, in terms of making good choices, of living a good life, then it seems as if um, beliefs and emotions and lots of other things in between um, have an important role to play. And in some contexts, it may be better maybe to use cold strategies, to use your head, 
to breathe. And in other contexts, it's better to follow your instinct, to just go with the flow, as, as some uh, psychologists say, because in, in some contexts, reason is not to be trusted. So I think what really makes for a wise person, a person who leads a life that um, she is happy to identify herself with, is not so much being very heady or being very emotional, but being able to recognize in which situations she needs to trust her emotion and in which situations she needs to sit down and think. And um, very often we don't have a clear idea of what these situations are because the role of rationality in terms of cognition has been emphasized and the negative aspects of um, the body or the emotions have also been highlighted. And I think we need to rebalance that. And, and I think psychology has done a lot in recent years to offer us a, a different way of looking at things. So do you think we're underusing our emotions? With like our big frontal lobes. You're asking lobes. to Italians people. <laughs> <laughs> and they're using their emotions. We as, as, a, yeah. as the world. Um, okay, maybe I can start. So I, I don't... I think in many situations we use our emotions without realizing that that's what we're doing. And, and, and I think probably the area where this is most obvious is... Is, is moral reasoning, right? Um, and I'm sure a lot of the audience is aware of the Jonathan Haidt type of experiments where he tried to show that most of our moral judgments are actually driven by these raw uh, feelings of disgust that are socially conditioned rather than by um, complex philosophical arguments about um, what kind of behavior would lead to um, the best outcome. Um, now, of course, we also engage in moral reasoning, and of course, when we do that, we may be able to affect the way in which we think and other people think, but it's also true that um, when we judge a certain situation to be immoral, for instance, a case of incest, which was the example that Haidt used, um, most of our initial reactions is shaped by what we have been taught. Um, and, and then a lot of what goes on afterwards is really the job of the lawyer trying to find an argument that fits with our initial reaction and justifies it, rather than um, coming up with a good philosophical reason for condemning incest first, and then uh, forming the, the judgment um, as a consequence of it. So I think we're not really underusing the emotions. Emotions are everywhere as the case of effects, I think, powerfully demonstrates, but sometimes we just don't realize what role they're playing, and therefore we just think we are driven by reason even when we're not. So I think that, that kind of ties up to what you said about um, something rational as a belief that we have evidence for, but of course we can have evidence for anything we want. So we have our beliefs first, and then we seek out the evidence, yeah. um, and then as um, Benedetto says, we say it's rational, but it's really an illusion. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's a really fascinating, as you, you know, it's something that really interests me as well as a researcher and things. It's like uh, we, we built belief of the world and how. But just to, to go back just one step on the discussion we are having of uh, we are using too much emotion on things, is as, as Lisa says, it's very difficult to, to know uh, because I don't think there will be any process we can do in which we can clearly separate it. But it comes an interesting question that I briefly mentioned while I was saying. Now the artificial intelligence is doing a huge development and we are developing algorithms that are better and better in doing things, recognize voice and action and things. 
The question will come because clearly these, uh, these algorithms are designed by us and uh, uh, we know what we put in there, although there are some unexpected behavior that might come from it. But then it might be a question of uh, if emotions are so important, uh, will eventually to have a, a full, complete artificial agent that computer will need to have emotion and then it starts to become a really a problematic so if, what, if it's through what we are saying you can't really distinguish the two and things maybe to reach a certain level of complexity that things will not be able to do what it has to do without emotion and then you start to get a bit worried because imagine an angry computer with uh, uh, oh, incredibly powerful limit so it's going to become a really interesting question in the next years, uh, uh, and the machine will be probably helping us to understand these things. But um, so you said emotion is a, is a pre-programmed response. Mm. That sounds something like we could easily do program. without. No, mm. something that we pre- could program. If it's a pre-programmed yeah. response to an event, that yeah. sounds something reasonably easy to put into. No, your no, machine. it would be easy to program. But then is the point is, do we need it, or we can? Uh, on them because he has, well, do, you he has some kind of, do you need emotion? Uh, I mean, it can have some downside. You know, an angry person can be pretty dangerous. An, ar- an angry algorithm and control all the, uh, you know, knowledge and things would be even more dangerous. But then is my question is more like not if we can do or not, if we have to do to reach a certain level of complexity, or not, or maybe because that machine doesn't evolve with the need we need. They don't need this response. It will be really an interesting question. Okay. So before I go to the next question, let's take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, Yep, right here, down here, and um, the next one over there. Uh, Very interesting presentations from all of you. In, (coughs) In that last comment, you mentioned imagination. And, but that's the first time any of you had mentioned it. And I wonder, the question, uh, do our emotions control us or do we control our emotions? What would we think of the idea that we are controlled by our imagination or perception of the emotions of others, either directly in front of us or even ourselves in a different state? what impels you to do something is, is, is either immediate awareness of the emotions of people that you're interacting with or imagining their emotions or your emotions in a future situation. Okay, and one more over there before we answer. Um, yeah, um, you were talking about... Um, whether emotions control us, and uh, and I think one of you was talking about the respectability of the science or the philosophy of emotions. Um, it seems to me that, that that all of that turns on being esta- being able to establish some kind of causal relationship between whatever we would call emotions and whatever happens next, and that seems to be profoundly profoundly difficult because if I prick myself with a needle and then you know I behave in a certain way it seems impossible unless I'm mistaken to establish a causal relationship between 
what is called the pain because all you have to go on is my report of that pain and then the behavior. And I think that is why the science of emotion, if we can call it that, continues to lack uh, respectability and, and the philosophy of, 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 of emotion as well. So I was just wondering if you have any light to shed on the profound fundamental issue that might one day make that science or philosophy respectable, which is the causal relationship between emotion and whatever happens next, i.e. the title of the talk, which is, do they control us? Okay, so we have two questions. One is, can we show a causal relationship between emotion and outcomes? Um, or do we have to just rely on self-report? And the other question involves imagination, theory of mind, and empathy. Um, Benedetto, do you want to do you want to maybe take the second one? I feel like a neuroscience oh, answer one, here. I don't have any clue, so I'll, oh, I'll right. take it the first. <laughs> okay, then free for all. Okay, if it's free for all, then I I give it a try with the the first one, or maybe also the second one briefly. Um, I think that indeed it is it can happen very much that we respond to what we imagine would be the case. And the fact that maybe also what happens with the pathological cases sometimes, you know, often in anxiety, we're we, we responding to a kind of imagination that we have of a situation um, going in a certain direction. So that's definitely the case. Um, it, I guess it's an interesting question whether also in cases where we, where we think we are not responding to imagination. There is an imaginative component, I'm not sure, but I think it's a very interesting consideration. And the other question, if um, I'm not sure I understood it fully because I couldn't hear some of the words, but uh, I think that science is a lot about, in fact, you know, one of the, the debates you have or the disagreements you have between philosophers and scientists is that scientists are only looking at causation and they're telling you, you know, well, we're looking at what is going on in the brain, which is causing what's going on in the body. Whereas philosophers say, well, we're not interested in causation. We're giving you this conceptual uh, analysis of, uh, you know, what is an emotion. And if you tell me an emotion is what is caused by, like William James famously said, the emotion is caused by bodily changes that are going on in your, in your body, that cause feelings. And say, so, well, that's just a causal explanation. So I, I think of science very much being, if respectability means giving causal explanations, that I think what but, science is all about. If I understood I think, the question. I think, I think it might be, I think that if I, okay, now is what I understood. <laughs> but, um, I, I think it's like the, the argument is that emotion has a component that is extremely subjective. Like what is a fear? Fear is like what is red? Red. What is the redness of red? What is the blueness of blue? And that is a hard problem for science. And people have even argued that it is impossible to address in science and philosophy. So this kind of like consciousness aspect of emotion, you're right, is a difficult problem. Nevertheless, um, emotion has also other manifestations that are not the subjective experience of fear. There are some other interesting manifestations as a point of view of biologists. I'm interested in seeing, for example, an animal is going to sweat when he's in a fear, and there is even an adaptive reason, because when another animal is going to catch it, it can escape more easily. So uh, there are aspects of the question that can be addressed, and we cannot just say, oh, emotions are too difficult, let's leave it, because I think we're never going to have an answer for doing that. Though I agree with you, there is the 
hardcore aspect of the subjective experience of emotion is the same problem of the subjective consciousness experience of red that is hard, and some people even argue that it is impossible to, to address, but I don't think so. I mean, eventually it will take time, and you know, maybe it will come from things we're not expecting. We'll make an algorithm in which some property will start to arise and we'll understand. But there are other aspects of emotion that we can and we should study. But I just want to say that emotions have been studied in animals for many, many years, right? So if you agree that um, some physiological measures are related to a specific emotion like fear, then you can manipulate those. Causality. We don't, we don't necessarily agree with that. The point is, where is the causality? Between what and what? between the so-called emotion, which can only be reported. Well, it it cannot only be reported. That's I mean, it could be measured. Definition. I mean, it could be also measured, right? So if you think that the physical manifestation is linked to it, you can. And you can actually lesion one part of his brain and not seeing this manifestation anymore. If an emotion, as Benedetto says, is a pre-programmed response, all I need to do is measure it. I can look in the brain and look at amygdala activity. I can use my skin conductance response. There's a lot of physiological measures, so it's a matter of definition. And I think for neuroscience, you say, well, emotion for me is physiological response, and then I can measure them and I manipulate them in animals by using, and humans, by changing the physiology. Um, But if you say emotion has to be a feeling that has to be reported, that is one view of emotions. And I think that's why the first question that I had is, what is emotion? Because that really really changes the way that we approach it. Um. Yeah, maybe um, a, a quick word on that. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we don't have um, a complete map of causal connections. But I think that's a very uh, demanding um, expectation of any science, not just the science of emotion, and especially when it has to do with complex organisms that have evolved like animals and humans. Uh, But we definitely have kind of snapshots. We have little pieces of the puzzle, and I think it's uh, fair enough for philosophers and scientists to start from those and build up on those. And I guess um, the... The discussion that I wanted to start with the presentation on the relationship between the presence of emotion and an agency, the fact that sometimes we can observe in, in people with depression and schizophrenia, for instance, who have flat affect, a complete change in the way in which they act, in which their motivation is sustained, suggests that there are ways in which we can map the causal connections between feeling emotions or um, having emotions of a certain intensity and the way in which people behave. It's not uh, incredibly detailed. Um, it has holes that needs to be filled, gaps that need to be filled, as explanatory gaps. But I think it's, it's, it's a way to start. And, um, and I think philosophers can help scientists somehow, humbly, um, to, to fill um, this map, to complete this map, even if, um, as um, Giovanna was saying, we're not always interested just in causal connections. And in terms of imagination, it's true we haven't talked very much about imagination. But one thing I was mentioning when I was talking about the somatic marker view is that an important part of choosing is the capacity to imagine. Because what you do when you choose is you imagine a certain outcome and then you see how you emotionally react to it. 
Um, so you, you're, you have to choose um, between buying a smaller house in the city center or a bigger house in, in the suburbs, right? You try to see yourself in that house at that time. You try to think about the life that you'd have. That's an act of imagination. You project yourself into a future, a world that is not yet actual, is not yet there. And you see what your emotions are telling you. And if um, you hate the idea of living in a small house, you think space is more important, then um, you, you'll go for, for the bigger house in the suburbs. I mean, that's the idea. It's too simple, of course. It's when decisions are much more complex than that. But imagination plays an important role there. And also, I think imagination plays a very important role in our capacity to, um, to remember. So uh, the, the capacity to remember and to imagine have been very closely related, and, and, and people who lack one very often lack the other, um, because both require trying to think of yourself at a time that is different from the time in which you're actually thinking. Um, and emotions can affect both um, imagination and, and memory. So I think it is an important uh, issue when we're thinking about emotions. And I think it does uh, come in when we're thinking especially about the relationship between emotions and action. Yeah, um, I suppose my other, <coughs> other point was... Maybe, that maybe we should leave it's other... Important to, it's important because we're social animals. The emotions that are really important to us are the emotions of others as much as of ourselves. So I'm going to follow up from that. What do you think is um, unique about human emotions? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> That's a good answer. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, is, what is unique about human emotion? Uh, uh, I mean, is what is unique about human motor skills? Or human, you know, you can imagine that some could be more complex, some can have... Uh, I mean, you can imagine very, very simple situation. Think about I was having a conversation over dinner because I knew I was invited to this event with uh, a colleague who's an expert on emotion, Patrick Pouliermier, and we were having discussion asking him what is an emotion to just get. And he says, like, what's about warm that is very simple and when it's like uh, it's a substance uh, that is uh, bitter or things, the warm goes away. Is that warm scared by the, the things? Is it just a simple response we can map and that warp. So there's a layer of, so there is this behavioral manifestation and probably is there even in a simple system with, with the limited amount of neuron and things. And then there is this increasing degree of complexity to go to the awareness of the emotion itself. But I don't think there is um, one demarking line goes from human to, I think we too often have de- done this mistake to think that human are something so special compared to the other uh, beings. Okay, so we'll take a few more. <coughs> um, over there. Uh, I just want to... Yeah, do you want to put up your... Just over there. So I wanted to thank you all for giving such you know, um, informal and interesting uh, talks. I, I, my question is about the work of Jonathan Haidt, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned him. Say again? Uh, the work of Jonathan Haidt, especially in like, politics and how political reasoning is really emotion-driven, at least in his research. 
And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, because I personally think it's quite you know, problematic. If, if it's all emotional, then these things, you know, emotions can be used for good social causes, but they can also be overturned by you know, using or manipulating those same emotions. So maybe a bit more spock in our politics might, might help. But I could be wrong, so I just wanted to you know, get uh, all of your thoughts on that. I wanted to ask how much affirmation by another individual and trust affects our emotional health. Maybe on height. Um, I mean, it's social intuitionism. So this this idea that our moral judgments are basically driven by um, raw emotional reactions, and then we come up with a seemingly rational explanation why we are having that particular moral judgment is very controversial. And I'm not myself sure I want to buy the old theory. Um, I think definitely his experimental work is very interesting because he reminds us of how important emotions are when exactly in those contexts in which we might underestimate the role of emotion. But I also think that we shouldn't um, think that just because emotions may be maybe the initial causal um, factor that leads us to think in a certain way, then there is no place for reason. There is no place for giving arguments. There is no place for trying to put our views in a more kind of coherent system. Because um, it is actually when we can verbalize our our choices and our beliefs, when we can share them with other people, that we have a chance of developing some kind of critical distance from our own beliefs, accept other people's opinions, have a mutual exchange, be maybe more open to counter-evidence when there is evidence against our judgment. So although the manifestation of our initial reaction, which then becomes a moral judgment, may be initially driven by emotions, and reason seems to be just a kind of really nice illusion. We, we, th- we want to think that we went through a, a very detailed argument to come to a certain position when that wasn't the case. At some point, having the argument is important because otherwise there is no debate. Um, if, if it's just my emotional reaction uh, against your emotional reaction, you know, it's, it, the, the whole situation comes to a standoff quite quite soon. Um, Once um, we can put things into arguments, once we can verbalize them and share them, um, we also have the opportunity of taking that particular judgment about insisting that particular scenario and um, making it coherent with lots of other things that we believe, which helps us very much form a sense of ourselves as agents. Because um, in order to believe that we are agents with opinions who can act on our goals and on our beliefs, we need to think that we are largely coherent and that we, um, and we identify with certain positions. For instance, in politics, that's very important to be able to say, I have certain views. And even if we are not always perfectly consistent, the idea is that we see ourselves as um, flexible but uh, situated in a specific uh, position with respect to the larger debate. So I think um, although it's very important to recognize the causal role of emotion in our judgment, which I think may always be present, it's also important to recognize that the capacity to offer reasons 
is very important. And it's very important because we are social animals, because we don't live in isolation, because it is important to us what other people have to say about us and what other people think. Um, and I think reason has that kind of role of, of enabling uh, debate, enabling dialogue. Can I say something about that question about affirmation, right? And I think, I think that's incredibly important, uh, the, the role that... Uh, what other, how others react to our emotional response at all levels and stages of life. So I'm thinking of, of children, right? Of course children have emotions of distress and, and, and you know, joy, but then when it comes to the specifics, they so much look at the caregiver and they kind of almost look for guidance. What is it that I'm supposed to feel right now? I mean, I don't have children, but I've seen some of my, you know, my colleagues. I, I actually, quite recently, one of her little kids, she just fell. And then was a bit confused and looked up her mom. And the mom was like, oh. and so then the kid went like, <laughs> so it's like, okay, now I'm supposed to be upset. But I think that's, so, in fact, that's then what determines social differences and cultural differences in how we respond emotionally. We know that, you know, the, the kind of more social cultures, as they are called in, you know, Japanese cultures, in which there is, uh, an, you know, there are all sorts of social expectations about how to behave and how to regulate your emotions, which then in, eventually influence uh, your demeanor, but also what you feel. And, and again, you know, even when we are adults, there are lots of senses in which we rely on others to kind of have this affirmation of, is what I'm feeling okay? I'm allowed to feel it. And is it a thing, actually? So just recently I read about, um, because I'm interested in this role of the environment in emotion, I read about a phenomenon called the um, place attachment and how we become very attached to places in which we've grown, we've grown up. And uh, so I realized, okay, why am I so nostalgic sometimes when I come back from Italy and I'm here? And so there is the kind of affirmation that, yes, that's a feeling that other people have and you can have it. And so it becomes suddenly more important in your life and that also enables you to explore it, think about it, regulate it. So I think it's hugely important, uh, social recognition, yes. So we talk a lot about emotion as guiding us towards something here. Um, <laughs> and my question is, what is the end goal? And do you think emotion is the end goal? Because a lot of time you hear people do things because it makes them happy, or they don't do things because it makes them sad. So is it emotion is not the guide, but it's actually the end goal of everything? What, can it be both, in a sense? It can be both. Uh, yes. It can be whatever you want it to be. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do I have end goals? You know, it seems such, such a continuous uh, project, my life, that uh, I don't know if I have any end goal, uh, and I don't know that I ever... You know, rarely, even when I go and eat my chocolate because I'm getting bored, I don't really think, okay, my end goal now is going to be happier and less bored. I just do it. So I think there is a lot to be said for just our habits and routines that we enter into. And I think emotions play a huge role in, you know, in guiding those routines. And also we kind of probably do those routines because we want to regulate our emotions. But when it comes to more, this kind of language is more, I use my emotions. My emotions use me. I'm not sure that that really uh, happens, or is maybe the right way to talk about it? it, um, it I don't know if there is time on this one. So I think you got to an important point that on which I kind of have a slightly disagreed my, myself. There has been a lot of research about that we do things for happiness and optimize happiness. LSE is a powerhouse for this type of research. And I somehow feel that I can question this view. I don't think we do all the time things for increasing our happiness. Sometimes, you know, I was uh, 
cross with a colleague. I wanted to really get angry. My wife said, don't do it. It's going to have bad consequence. I say, like, I don't care. <laughs> and it wasn't that making me happy. I had to just get my anger out. What happens when you're married to an English yeah? woman? <laughs> yeah, but the, the colleague was Italian, so I <laughs> get away with it. But, but it's just like we do a lot of things, not just to maximize our happiness. We do kids. There is tons of research that having kids uh, diminishing your happiness. We do them anyway because they enrich your life and we have other goals. So I think it's a very narrow view, this view that we are all driven to maximize this happiness. Sometimes we're just uh, driven uh, and sometimes uh, is adaptive doing things that are not making you happy, but you know, have some goal, like propagate your species or whatever thing. Okay, we'll take one last question um, over there. Just regarding the distinction you were talking about, the emotion and rationality, don't you think that even when we act emotionally, there is still an element of rationality? But the difference is that they're both the same thing. When I'm acting emotionally, I'm thinking of right now my immediate benefit. I still use my reason. Your example you mentioned about the fly, fight or flight. So he was still using his reason. He was still acting yeah, rationally. Yeah, no, my, but this is there is no difference. They are basically both the same thing. Yeah. But the matter of time, when I'm acting far ahead about the outcome in the future is reason. But when I'm acting right now, immediate is emotion. So they are not different from each other. That's why we can't distinguish them. I, this is totally the point. I mean, that was my answer when I said that, that I don't think, even we don't have neural evidence, they are separated and think. Even now you were having a rational argument, you were constrained in your trousers, the light was having an effect. You know, I think it has been, I think, too much of a red herring. You know, people love dichotomy and men and women, light and days, but sometimes dichotomy can be extremely misleading. I think this is one of these cases. And also another thing is that you may also ask questions about the rationality of emotions, and that's something that philosophers love to do. One of my PhD students is interested in that. So sometimes our emotional reactions are perfectly proportionate to the situation, and sometimes they are not. Some people fear spiders much more than they should, given how dangerous spiders actually are. Um, And then um, the question is, Is that an appropriate emotion? Is there a way in which I can control it? Fear of flying is also something that a lot of people want to try and control because they they value traveling, but they they feel they are kind of constrained by the fact that they have this irrational fear of flying because flying is now actually much more dangerous than crossing the road in London and, you know, that kind of thing. So certainly um, I think there are questions about the rationality of, of emotions just as there are questions about the rationality of belief, which, again, I think shows that we shouldn't uh, keep cognition and affect apart. So I think fear is a really good example because if you look, um, I was just reading about this, this top, um, top causes for death is heart attack, cancer, um, accident and suicide or something else, but the top phobias are um, fear of spiders, fear of flying, fear of holes is number 10. Yeah. And then number 12 is fear of death. So that comes, that comes below fear of, of, of holes in airplanes. Um, but I think, I think it's quite interesting that we do fear that. And, um, and people often try to explain those fears in terms of what used to be 
scary for us, right? Usually, if we're in midair, we were about to die. Now, if we're in midair, we'll probably make it, hopefully, to our destination. Um, is this pre-programmed package that were packaged for a different environment in which we are? This is the reason why sometimes, you know, and an animal shouldn't really question about the death, but should be worried about hole which you can fall it because it will bring it dead. So or open spaces. Yes. So usually you're in open space, you are less likely to survive because a predator can come to you, but not now. Okay. Well, I think that's it for us today. Well, thank you so much, and thank you to our wonderful speakers.